Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast where we examine compelling themes and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. And I'm Brittany. And this week, we'll be discussing the theme of greed in Lord of the Rings. To get us into this theme, we have a quote. This quote comes from Book 3, Chapter 3, The White Rider in The Two Towers, and is Gandalf describing Sauron. He is in great fear, not knowing what mighty one may suddenly appear wielding the ring and assailing him with war, seeking to cast him down and take his place. That we should wish to cast him down and have no one in his place is not a thought that occurs to his mind. That we should try to destroy the ring itself has not yet entered his darkest dream. Yeah, this is, I think, a, a good quote because it, it, it kind of reminds the reader why hobbits are kind of the best to smuggle the ring into Mordor because... Not everyone's as greedy as Sauron is. Well, there's that for sure. And, and they, I think, tend to be even less greedy than most. They also are, are not the type of people, I think, that Sauron expects to be a threat, that they would be overpowered in, in other people's quests and greed. Yeah, he, he definitely wouldn't expect anything from them, if he even really knows about them. I mean, I'm sure he knows, but eh, I don't think he cares about them. Yeah, exactly. I think he, he, he knows little and cares less until he finds out from Gollum that that's where the ring is. But I imagine that was quite a surprise. He's like, oh, this has just been hanging out with you for hundreds of years in a cave. Awesome. <laughs> it's almost a, a theme in a lot of books, shows, movies one of the main villains can in some ways be undone just because they think other people operate like them mm. and they don't think that other people could be kinder or more compassionate or less greedy or selfish or other people couldn't possibly not care to grab power and it can often be their undoing you think they would learn from it but that they don't yeah, read a book, Sauron. But they they also, they're the most important person in the room slash the world slash the universe, so they don't really feel like they need to learn from anyone anyway. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But you're absolutely right. That's a really, really interesting point and way of looking at villains. I mean, and it's also, sadly, sometimes why beautiful characters die, because sometimes they do the same thing in reverse, where it's, mm. how could someone possibly do something that terrible? That's true, yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of villain characters... Ooh, who is your character? Uh, I wanted to talk about Saruman. Okay, okay. So I thought Saruman was an interesting character. For one, we get to know him a lot more than we get to know Sauron. And yeah. I think that that kind of highlights the greed that he has and that he, he's certainly characterized by within the Two Towers and, and by the, the Lord of the Rings proper. You know, Saruman is, is meant to be the head of this wise council, but when he sees that Sauron is rising in the east, he doesn't turn to the others for help or for counsel because he still has this fear of sharing power. And instead he turns to Sauron, who he bows to, but only for as long as is necessary for him to get the ring. He, he always envisions that he will be 
the new Lord of the Ring, and and you know the the entirety of really the Fellowship and Two Towers with these Uruk High hunting them is for Saruman's own sake more than Sauron's, where Sauron is still kind of hanging out in the east fighting Gondor, but. Saruman is the one who is sending people out to chase him for his own benefit, not to take them to Mordor, not to take them to Sauron. And it also becomes his his downfall because he, in order to build these armies, he turns to industry. And that industry, I think, is representative of greed in Tolkien's world, where the idea that you are going to take more resources than you need to survive to mass power and wealth is i think anathema to his his kind of view of the world and so he clearly we see this biting saruman in 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 the back how's that how does that how does that that phrase go biting him in the butt (laughs) isn't that a phrase am i am i making up this idiom is bite him in the butt an idiom I think so, but now that you've said it and questioned it yourself, I'm confused. (laughs) Yeah, it is bite him in the butt, only they usually don't use the word butt, they use other badder words. (laughs) Well, but this is Lord of the Rings, so maybe you should say rump. There you go. This clearly comes back to bite Saruman in the rump, because (laughs) the Ents come and they see this destruction, and that's what, what leads them to go to war. So, yeah, I think that it's it's really interesting seeing, seeing Saruman as kind of taken away from the wisdom that he, he had at one point and moving to trying to amass power through industry, through all these other kinds of ways. He starts calling himself Saruman of the many colors because even one color isn't enough for him. <laughs> he wants to have all the colors and all the power and all of uh, the wisdom. Well, and he thinks that he does have it, right? Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Which anyone who has all the wisdom should know they could never have all the wisdom. <laughs> yes, this this is the the irony at play, yeah. And so yeah, I just I think that he's interesting because because he also shows the kind of he's the antithesis of the agricultural livelihood of the hobbits of the Ents, and so him being the final villain in the Shire is I just think a really a really interesting element that we see there in the book. Yeah, I also think it's, it's interesting. I think we've mentioned before on the podcast the the difference between Saruman's mm. character in the books versus in the movies. In the movies, we don't see this kind of duplicitous side of Saruman, where a large part of why he was communicating with Sauron to begin with was to get information. It wasn't because, yeah, he was actually planning to just follow him Mm. he wanted to get information know what was going on and then use that information for his own power Mm. in in the movies it's much more like no one can stand up to him so we either have to join him or die yeah in the books you see so much more that it it wasn't a pragmatic thing for him for him it was no i i want to take this power I mean, maybe, maybe he could convince himself in some ways is pragmatic, but he wanted to be the ruler of Middle-earth, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and even that knowledge that you mentioned, him, him trying to get knowledge from Sauron, I think is emblematic, Where whereas Gandalf is very, very wary of using the Palantir, Saruman is greedy for the knowledge and, and seeks to use it 
regardless of the dangers. I also think it's kind of interesting that from the beginning, he seemed to get along with Gandalf just fine until Gandalf isn't going to just do what he says. Then he has a problem and wants to destroy him. And then once he comes back and he's like, oh no, now I'm a white wizard too. We're on like equal footing and as far as power goes and all of that. He doesn't like that very much either. Yeah, absolutely. He wanted to be the head of the order. Yeah, exactly. The idea that Gandalf would, would take that, I think is, I think that is one thing that the movies do well is, is showing Saruman's disdain for Gandalf's views of wisdom and joy and, and things like that, where he looks mm-hmm. down on the values that Gandalf has. And, and that I don't think is wise. I don't think it's wise to reject other people's perspectives and ideas just because they're different from yours. Yeah. Well, and especially I think the way he was doing it too was this elitist way. Like, oh, well, you spent too much time with the hobbits who don't know anything. You smoke too much weed and it's addled your mind. <laughs> He's like, you need book knowledge. What an elitist. That's his voice, by the way. Oh, yeah, that, that sounded just like Christopher Lee. <laughs> yeah, I, I should be an impersonator. Really, yeah. My yeah. stature is also the same as him. <laughs> well, why don't you bring up what plot you brought for today? Yeah, so funnily enough, going off of some of what you were talking about earlier with Saruman, I think also very much applies to the scouring of the Shire. Mm. And so that's what I wanted to talk about because the scouring of the Shire, if you're not as familiar with this part, basically what happened was... The hobbits, once they returned, they had to fight this kind of oppressive reality that Lotho Saxville Baggins had set up in the Shire, basically Mm. with Saruman's help. So Lotho had begun to basically have a land grab with money that he had made, Mm. apparently from selling pipeweed to Saruman, which I didn't remember that part, but that's kind of hilarious. Oh, yeah, yeah, Um, because when they get to Isengard, Merry and Pippin are like, why is there so much pipeweed here? There was, but I don't know if it was for Saruman since he was the one who had that comment. Mm. (laughs) He was just just an industrialist. An entrepreneur. (laughs) That's true. He just wanted to invest. (laughs) He's like, oh, this will be a sought-after commodity soon. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So Lotho, he started buying up land and then started calling himself the chief and wanted to basically control the whole shire. And then Saruman helped him kind of take control of the Shire, uh, but then ended up locking him up once Saruman arrived to rule there himself after being tossed out of Isengard. Because, again, he needs to rule somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. But during the process of Lotho taking over, he began industrializing the Shire mm. and caused a lot of damage to people and land. And something that Tolkien scholars have talked about as the transformation of this beautiful, green, peaceful, rural shire into this industrialized wasteland 
paralleled Tolkien's actual views on the destruction of English countryside by industrialization as well. Hmm. It was funny that <laughs> something I was reading said that Tolkien had a much publicized dislike of allegory, but <laughs> this chapter can be viewed as like one of the most directly allegorical parts of the book. Mm -hmm. In particular, it mentioned that the loss of the old mill in Bywater, mm -hmm. which was then replaced by a larger version that just made everything like grimy and dirty and, you know, brought these different problems with it. And uh, they were saying that this mimics an event from Tolkien's actual childhood. Also, that Tolkien himself had commented that, you know, some of the symbolism lay in this feeling of loss that he felt after returning from World War One and discovering that many of his close friends had died and the world that he remembered from his youth, you know, had largely disappeared. Mm. And yeah, I just, I thought that was really interesting to see how a large part, it was just the greed of this one habit that was the point of entry for all of these other changes that the rest of the Shire didn't want. Mm. And it was for, yeah, the sake of industry and producing more, which wasn't necessarily needed. Yeah, it just reminds me of how we see now, too. I mean, to a different extent, for sure, in, in our own area, just with gentrification and development mm. and where you used to have small businesses and restaurants or stores or whatnot just going out of business because a Walmart or a Target or something comes in or housing being torn down and this new fancy one being built in its place that is completely out of the price range of the people who previously lived there mm. and so it just kicks them out and so yeah i think there is so much greed that can come with industrialization and development and all of these changes that i think there are some positive things to them for sure i was watching something earlier today and <laughs> it was supposed to take place back at the top of the 1900s and they had to pour a huge thing of boiling water into this like big basin and then put their clothes in and then put the soap and then use this paddle to like wash their clothes and it's just like and then one of those you know those those boards that you see and mm -hmm. it's just i'm glad that we have things called washing machines now <laughs> because yeah that would be terrible <laughs> yeah. yeah and modern technology lets us come right into our listeners' ears on whatever podcasting network of choice. We don't have to be kind of standing in a square yelling our views to get out to more people than our immediate circle, but we've been able yeah. to access new communities and meet new people through it and all sorts of things. So that there are some good aspects for sure. Yeah. But yeah, the, it does come at a cost and Absolutely. And so often it can be driven by greed as well. And I think that's where it can often become most problematic because there are a lot of helpful things that people can create um, that can help just in daily life or society, contact, like all sorts of things. But then there are other things that's just 
produce more and more and produce them so they'll break so people will have to buy more and you know mm. this this whole terrible cycle of consumerism and industry you know obviously would put the pollution that and loss of land that mm-hmm. um comes with that too so i thought that the the scouring of the shire showed that in a striking way and in a way that you know i'm always just sad it was cut from the movies so i had to talk about it yeah yeah i think that's that's really really smart no oh, thank you <laughs> Well, I guess we should move into our questions. So what is your compelling question for me? Yeah, so my question is, do you think that greed is the source of evil for Tolkien? And if so, what is the source of goodness? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Well, starting with the quote that we started with... (laughs) Who had almost seen maybe yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> because obviously Sauron can represent that, Saruman can represent that, Gollum can represent that. Mm. It destroyed them all, and not only they themselves, but so many others. And yeah, it was because of their greed for power, essentially. Yeah, also, in some ways, it affected Boromir. He didn't die specifically because of that but Mm. it broke the fellowship which is huh that's kind of a nice poetic idea of greed having the power to break fellowship Mm. also you have in the hobbit book Mm. that being the source of the downfall of thorin as well and why so many dwarves died and also i mean even smog is also the main villain Mm. and he just wanted to sit on his hoard of treasure so i literally hoarding as much as he can yeah Yeah. (laughs) this is where the word comes from right (laughs) smog specifically yeah um yeah so i i would say that it does characterize all of his villains i think and Mm -hmm. i think those who turn away from it are the the protagonists i mean i guess you would say that frodo in the very end wasn't able to turn away from it because Mm. of the the other factors happening there but galadriel aragorn sam all of these people said no to that power Mm. and and that was a defining moment for them also a moment that some of them feared sam less so because he never thought that he would have the ring but (laughs) and interestingly it, it does show how that greed corrupted to the point where it broke relationships mm. with i mean we don't really know if sauron had any relations to begin with i'm not sure <laughs> <laughs> but certainly none that aren't just manipulative yeah but at the very least kind of at the the start of of our journey in the lord of the rings it, it started with deagle finding the ring and then smeagol killing him his own cousin for it hmm. and so it broke that relationship and then it broke Smeagol's relationships with all the rest of his family and his people mm-hmm. he was exiled and then it broke his relationship with Frodo in yeah. the end too 
and thankfully Frodo and and Sam's relationship was so strong it could withstand anything. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. But it it could have broken theirs too. Yeah. And for Elrond, I think. I, I don't think that the elves were allies in the same way with men ever after that mm. uh, with humans because he's like, no, I've seen what they do and they're weak. And it was Isildur choosing not to destroy the room when he had the chance that made this whole thing happen again. So yeah, I, I think it does really break down relationships. What is the source of good? Hmm. I mean, Sam and Frodo's relationship. <laughs> maybe sacrificing for the good could be. Maybe sacrificing to undermine greed hmm. or to... I'm not sure, but, but then you have someone like Elrond or Galadriel, and they don't really fall into that, but you wouldn't say necessarily that they're not good. And I think maybe wisdom is shown to also be some amount of good in Tolkien's world and I think also you have Tom Bombadil he doesn't really sacrifice anything for anyone (laughs) but he is ultimately so untempted by the ring it's just like ah whatever I would lose it because like I just don't care about power (laughs) so yeah I'm I'm not sure on that one what were you thinking about it yeah, you, you brought up some really, really interesting points. I when, I when I posed this question, when I was thinking about it myself, I was thinking, you know, is there a, a kind of countervailing force to greed that might be the, the source of goodness? And then the first thing that came to mind was, was charity, but that didn't feel right for Lord of the Rings. Um, it, it felt like a good kind of opposite extreme to greed, but it, I don't think that that's what characters seem to operate on in in lord of the rings i have heard some scholars talk about pity in lord of the rings meaning and we've discussed this on the podcast before meaning different than our ideas of pity but really more being about compassionate so after after that i was thinking maybe contentment but not needing to go and and build resources and 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 bring power into your life but instead being content and Mm. and being able to rely on your garden or your farm or whatever else it is your even your your community or your nation might be a way of of utilizing that i was thinking also as you were talking like yeah maybe community Hmm. could be a counter to greed because you see how greed can break community but it's in like the strong bonds of of friendship and affection that overcome some of these things it's when people are putting power or greed above their community like with Thorin as part of also what is so sad to see the Shire destroyed in a way and and this community and this life that they had built just being destroyed yeah yeah it's exactly what I what I started thinking about when you were talking because when you mentioned the breaking of the fellowship, it almost made me think fellowship is the opposite of greed. That's where goodness comes from is, mm. you know, community is another great word for it. But this idea of being with others and being for others and that, that compassion and empathy that comes with that and and the sacrifice that Frodo makes and the refusal of power that 
Aragorn has and, and all these other types of decisions that we see as these really important moments, I think a lot of them do come down to ideas of community or fellowship. And, and yeah, I like that that as a as a kind of countervailing force. Yeah, yeah. Because maybe if you're doing fellowship right, greed can't really settle there. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, what, what was your compelling question? So my question for you is, I think that greed can take different forms. And I think we've been talking a lot about power. But I'm wondering, do you see different races in Middle Earth being more prone to experience different types of greeds? Or do you think the races struggle with kind of like the same types of greeds? Interesting. Well, I'll say off the bat that this is going to uh, overlap quite a bit with what I was planning for my missed opportunity. But oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I definitely think that, that there's a, a huge racialized component to how different communities operate and, and the w- things that they desire. And I think that for for men, or humans, I should say, you mostly see them as being seen as weak when they're greedy for power. And mm-hmm. and the fall of of humanity really as as yeah, being trustworthy or as leaders, you know, in the world, I think at the uh, beginning of the third age comes from Isildur's decision and and failure to destroy the ring, as you're mentioning. And you see Aragorn struggling with that. Right in the movie, that you know, he talks about that weakness is in my blood, and we <laughs> we see this idea that the race of humans that their Achilles' heel is this kind of greed for power. This leads to wars between each other and these other types of things that we don't see with other races the same way. We don't see elves fighting other elves or or dwarves fighting other dwarves for the most part, but we do see humans fighting other humans. For elves, I think if there was if there was a greed, it would be more of a greed in priority, the importance of their own society and their own community over other communities, mm-hmm. where they retreat and they, they seem to be the most magically powerful characters outside of Maiar like Gandalf and the other wizards, and we don't really see them sharing that, at least in the modern times or the contemporary times of the Lord of the Rings. We see the in the past where they, they helped build, I think, Durin's Gate in um, Moria and other types of things like that. But, you know, I, I don't know at least if that's still happening. And, and then for dwarves, and this is where I think there's some problems, is that dwarves, I think, <laughs> are, are so clearly shown as being greedy for wealth. And that being different than the greed for power that humanity shows, but mm-hmm. wanting things and that, that gold lust. Yeah, exactly. The dragon sickness hits dwarves mm-hmm. in ways that it doesn't hit others. And, and it literally, mm-hmm. by calling the dragon system, it makes them bestial in a way. It makes them inhuman or in, you know, not, not having the kind, same kind of personhood that other races might have. Um, though, of course, dragons can think and talk in this world too so maybe there's there's a whole different idea of of personhood that we should be considering (laughs) yeah it's interesting i i I was reading a little bit about dwarves and i guess it might be in part of their lore how they were created and when they were created and all of that then through what i was reading it says that when sauron gave 
the rings of power to the dwarves, it didn't have the same effect that he wanted it to have like it did on humans or men, I guess we could just say, because he only gave it to men. <laughs> and partially because they were just created in a different way and they were like almost a little resistant to it. But the effect that it did have on them made them have, I guess, a greater propensity for the dragon sickness or, mm. or whatnot. Um, it kind of affected them in that way instead. At least that's what I was reading. I, I don't know. I have not seen all of the lore of the lord of the rings because that's just too much the lore of the rings <laughs> yes exactly but i also was thinking about the hobbits mm. and i feel like their greed is more via gluttony mm, yeah yeah absolutely because they definitely have that going for them <laughs> It's it's not for for things in the same way of, of like it being wealth or jewels. It's things that make them comfortable and yeah, it's all hedonism. It's just things that that they can eat or smoke or drink or lay on and be comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, they even give people gifts when they go to parties. Mm, <laughs> yeah. Although I suppose some show up to parties they weren't invited to. So. <laughs> but. I was also thinking about, like, yes, I think that some of the races seem to be, like, more geared towards certain types of greed. Mm -hmm. And then there's others we just don't know, like orcs or the Maiar or anything like that. Yeah. But I think we also do see variation within races as well, because you have someone like Gollum who killed for the ring. Hmm. And then you have someone like Bilbo who was relatively unaffected by any drive to possess the ring for most of his life, you know? Mm. So it does seem like you have some differences. I mean, and then Lotho, like I was talking about earlier, he was, like, super greedy and, like, wanted land and wealth. And he wanted this title. And, you know, he wanted to be the chief of the Shire, you know? And then you have... Sam who's like, if I had the ring, I would turn the whole world into a garden, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's it's interesting, but I would like to see it in some ways be more fleshed out. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I mean, humans are the only species that starts wars, you know? <laughs> Animals kill mainly just when they need to either for protection or food you mm -hmm. know sometimes every once in a while you get an animal you're like oh you're scary but in in a large part the rest of the the world's animals don't but then you also get like some creepy bacteria that's like i'm gonna try to invade everything you know <laughs> so yeah it's it's interesting yeah yeah that is interesting well, why don't we head into our missed opportunities on greed in Lord of the Rings? And just to kind of follow up with, with what we were just discussing, I, I really do find it as a missed opportunity to further explore that kind of greed that, that dwarves are, are clearly so characterized by in much of what Tolkien writes, at least in, in The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, where mm -hmm. we see, yeah, them falling for the, the, the dragon sickness and that, that leading to the Battle of Five Armies there at the end of The Hobbit. We see Balin 
tunneled too deep into Moria to allow the Balrog to come out. Um, or or perhaps the dwarves mm-hmm. before him did. I think it's different in the book. But yeah, there are these like ideas of, oh, they, they're reaching too far for these jewels and, and things like that. And, and we also don't see what they do with those jewels. The only, the only way that we see them yeah. use Mithril is in creating the one defensive chainmail that Frodo uses. But outside of Smog's Horde, we don't actually see much use of gold and jewels and things like that in this society. So I, I wish there was a little bit more that we saw of that particularly in the movies because really in the movies we don't see much of dwarven culture at all and and i think there are some elements in the books that at least touch on these ideas i think one of the big differences for example that juxtaposes dwarves with goblins is that both of them are all into mining and such but goblins it's to yeah manufacture weapons of war and these other types of things whereas for for dwarves oftentimes it can be about artisanship and creating artistic pieces uh, of metalwork and and so maybe exploring some of those differences and then especially the differences within a dwarven community would be so so cool i i have seen other pieces of media who have kind of shown characters who don't conform to dwarven society the same way and and what that i think tells about a society is, is and that character is really interesting and, and we just don't see any of that in lord of the rings all the dwarves you know gimli and then all 15 or whatever that that bilbo travels with they all really toe this line to kind of what we see dwarves and what we expect of dwarves and we don't see any of them talking about oh i never got into metalworker or i don't see the the point of mining i just want to be an artist i just want to do x y or z and and that would have, i think been really really important particularly when they as a race are, are so often characterized by this really negative kind of trait of, of greed that, that we've discussed so far do you think that gimli has that though i think that that we frankly don't see much of gimli's character outside of the fact that he doesn't like elves to begin with and then he likes legolas and he <laughs> uh, we get some kind of personality traits of kind of him in battle so i don't know what gimli does for fun <laughs> <laughs> He was greedy for Galadriel's hair. That's true. That's true. Actually, really, he wasn't. I mean, it was creepy, but he did only ask for one. <laughs> yeah, and and he said he wasn't you know, like, "Give it, me all your hair." And and he was like, "It's I I shouldn't be asking. That it's ridiculous for me to ask." You know, it, yeah. it, it was it was a pretty modest request. <laughs> <laughs> it was a modest creepy ask. A modest yeah. creepy ask. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think to me, I I see Gimli having a lot of pride, but then I also see him caring a lot about kinship and, like, also friendship. Mm. At least, uh, I think, more than we ever see him, like, being greedy for wealth. That's true. Well, what missed opportunity were you thinking about? For me, it was an obvious choice, because I'm sure I've complained about this. Well, we've complained about this together so many times. But I, we've also complained about this. I'm pretty sure on the podcast before, but oh well. Um, <laughs> my missed opportunity is the adaptation from the books to the movies. In a lot of ways, I, I think the adaptations are, are good, but Faramir, like <laughs> what they did with his character is just very frustrating because in the books, he he wasn't tempted by by the ring Mm -hmm. he willingly let frodo go after hearing you know his explanation of 
what they were doing there and why they were there and what their aim was. And I also don't think he tortured Gollum for that information either. No, uh, Gollum was still mistreated by his men for sure. But Faramir then sat down with Gollum was like, let me explain what happened here. And we're sorry for this, you know. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, different. I think that was what made him so different than Boromir, who was so tempted by the ring. And, yeah, they just kind of had both of them struggle with the same thing, mm. which was like, oh, they're brothers. <laughs> like, no, that's that's not how genetics work. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, as far as I know, I don't know. I don't have a ring of power, but as far <laughs> as I understand. So yeah, that's just my missed opportunity to... I mean, we see Isildur struggle with it. We see Boromir struggle with it. Mm. We see uh, at least movie Aragorn be afraid that he will struggle with it. Mm. And so, yeah, it, it almost... It, it didn't have as much diversity within the human race for how they would respond to something like that yeah i i think it was, it was definitely a missed opportunity in terms of the adaptation but also i think that really not that many humans come in contact with the ring mm. during the the course of of the story and and i understand why that is but how interesting would it have been to see how eowyn would have mm reacted you know whether it would be i mean obviously she wanted glory in battle so the ring would help with that (laughs) (laughs) so but it would just be interesting you know to see how other people interacted with it because in the books it was clear that not every human acted the same but i think in the movies it was a little more one note absolutely i i agree but yeah i guess what what is your takeaway I think my takeaway when when we're talking about kind of the greed that comes with industry in these books and in these movies and how, uh, you know, community might be the the opposite of that greed, it's almost making me think of of Tolkien as kind of like a bizarro Marxist, (laughs) where like Marxists, he kind of sees this advent of industry in a very kind of deterministic way where it's going to change society and and create exploitative imbalances where um, the greedy take advantage of others and and hoard wealth and resources and all these other types of things it's almost like marx was right yeah but the funny thing is i think that while he would agree with marx's critique of capitalism he would have a completely different prescription for what to do about it whereas marxism is all about you know thus creating class consciousness to rise up against the bourgeoisie and creating communism creating a socialist idea where you know people are are operating in community and equality i think that tolkien would prefer to go back to feudalism back to a pre-industrial state that is more about gardens and that self-sufficiency and having your plot of land that you work and that's about it and you answer to a a benevolent king or, or whatever it might be but but he doesn't have that kind of future progressive look i think that that marxism brings with it but yeah i just i, I guess it makes me think i'm sure there's been some really interesting uh marxist critiques of of tolkien which i think would be really really interesting to to read yeah yeah that would be very interesting <laughs> yeah. What about you? What's your takeaway? 
Yeah, I think my takeaway is that greed is the root of most evils. Not Mm. all, but a lot of them. And I just hadn't really thought about that in terms of Lord of the Rings before. Mm. Because Lord of the Rings is so divorced from our world in so many ways. Whereas I can clearly see that in our society. It wasn't something that I'd seen as much in the Middle Earth societies. Yeah, no allegories here. (laughs) Yeah, so I guess it it makes me in some ways curious about some of the backgrounds of, you know, all of these Cimmerillion stories and everything, if that's like even more in there, in the wider lore of of the world and... Mm. And also, yeah, I I think I I like that idea of of fellowship being this kind of counterforce to greed, I think. That's definitely an idea that it would be interesting to think on more. Yeah, yeah. Well, why don't you let us know what we'll be talking about next week? Okay, so we are going to be returning to The Hunger Games which is great in general and is also great because now we have a whole new book in the world (laughs) that we can pull from. So if you have not read The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes yet, you have a week to get on that and you could definitely finish it in that amount of time. And then you have all of our podcast episodes on it as well. But we will be talking about the original trilogy and Songbirds and Snakes and we are going to be looking through the theme of beauty all right beauty in the hunker games that will be really cool well thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of geek between the lines you can find us on social media on facebook instagram twitter or pinterest or you can go to our website at bit.ly slash geek between the lines you can also join us on patreon at patreon.com slash geek between the lines where you can join our amazing patrons who help to keep the show sustainable and also get access to all sorts of fun extra content and goodies we want to thank Kimberly Taylor Pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find her designs at lacelet.com or search for Lacelet on Facebook or Instagram. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out! out.